Howdy doody. I think there used to be a, a character on TV named Howdy Doody. Yeah, I, I knew it was before mine. I heard, I've heard about him. I do not remember him, but I've heard about him. Was he a clown? A puppet. So it wasn't a real. Uh, oh, it wasn't a real person. It was a puppet. Uh huh. Okay, well, since we're not here to talk about howdy doody, we're here to talk about something much more important than that. It won't be long. Let's see. Uh, Wednesday night. Next Wednesday night. This will be our last Wednesday night before Thanksgiving that we'll be together because last next next Wednesday evening we won't have service the day before Thanksgiving for it's obvious reasons to some of us uh, because of all the preparation and the work and the travel that goes into that. So um, I'll ask you this question because it is a legitimate question since this is the last Wednesday night before. Uh, Thanksgiving that we'll meet together. Is anybody here thankful? Yes. Yeah. Carol's thankful. She just threw up both hands. They just went up. That's good. Yeah, he's a good God, isn't he? And for all the things for which we are thankful, I don't think if we're being honest, we can we can name or think of anything more important than the salvation that we have. Amen? Amen. To know that our name is written in the Lamb's book of life, our sins are forgiven. And so um, as we begin tonight, let's just let's just sing that chorus. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. It's a prayer, by the way. Right? We're addressing the Lord as we sing it. So it wouldn't be out of order if you wanted to close your eyes when you sung it, because it's we don't have to close our eyes when we pray, but sometimes it helps. Let's sing it to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me salvation so rich and free. We are thankful tonight, Lord, for everything that you have done for us, everything that you have given us, everything you've blessed us with. It's your word that teaches us that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. So we're thankful for your faithfulness to us. And it is true, Lord, we have no blessing in our lives. Nothing that even comes close to the salvation that you have so freely given. So we're thankful tonight. We bless your name and and we just give you glory for it. We're undeserving, but we do appreciate your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your word tonight, Lord. And I just pray that you would... um, Allow us to see things in your word tonight, understand things that maybe we hadn't seen before, and appreciate your word more fully, and we'll thank you, Lord, for what you do for us. It's in your name and for your glory we ask it, and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Well, turn with me in your Bibles, please, if you would, to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a book under... Uh, under our review tonight, and I will go ahead and share with you that I'm going to spend some considerable time tonight on background, laying a foundation, because after 1 Corinthians, what comes? 2 Corinthians. So let's just go ahead and lay a foundation for Corinthians so that we will have a, um, a good basis upon which to understand these two books of the Bible, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. 
I'm going to use the board uh, kind of as my outline tonight, and probably only myself, and I'm not sure that I can even do it, is follow, <laughs> follow what I've written there, because it, it seems so um, um, crowded, unorganized. But I believe I, know, I believe I know the order that I wrote it down. We'll see. But as we talk about uh, Corinthians, uh, somebody define the word Corinthians for me. It's, a, it's the name of a book of the Bible, but what does it mean, Corinthians? People who lived in the city of Corinth. There was a... There was a and we think, oh, well, that's, that's a stupid question. There are people who don't know there was a place called Corinth. And, and that's the reason that this book is called Corinthians. It's because of this ancient city, Corinth, and the people who lived there were called Corinthians. Kind of like we live in North Carolina, and the people who live here are called North Carolinians. Exactly, it's the same type of thing. So Corinthians... This is the group of people to which Paul is writing. He's writing to the Christians, um, those who were called to be saints, who live in this ancient city called Corinth. Now, the church was organized by Paul um, in Corinth. It just didn't happen. It just didn't spring into existence. But the Apostle Paul visited there, preached there, taught there, worked there, some would say he dug out a church, uh, and this church was organized by, by Paul. Some people say he founded the church there. I, I don't argue with that. First um, Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, kind of, um, we're going to read a lot of scripture tonight, but I, I just want us to get a basis of, um, of this book of the Bible and the background. First Corinthians 4, verse 15 uh, the scripture says there, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. So what he's saying is, sure, you have lots of teachers, you have lots of people who preach, you have lots of people who teach the word, but you only have one father in the Lord. And he's referring to himself. I was the one who preached the gospel to you, you were... You came to Christ under my ministry, under my teaching. I'm your spiritual father, he's saying. He says that directly in other places. And so it was Paul who, who organized this church in Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, if you want to turn with me there, we're going back. Uh, you may remember when we looked at the book of Acts and studied our way through it, We, you may recall how we talked about that all of the rest of the epistles of Paul fit in like a puzzle to different time periods in the book of Acts. So now we've, we've got to go to the book of Acts if we're going to understand the basis for Corinthians. So we're going to look at uh, Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 8, the middle part. The Bible says, And many of the Corinthians, Paul on his missionary journey, he's traveled to a city called what? Corinth, and the people who live there are called Corinthians. And so the Bible says, And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in night by vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And that city was what? Corinth. And he, Paul, continued there a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. So, it is at least a period of how long that Paul preached in Corinth? A year and a half. Exactly. That's a significant amount of time, isn't it? Preaching and teaching and establishing people in the faith and bringing people to Christ. He spent that amount of time there. Um, Organizing this church and getting things rolling. And then Paul left Corinth and went to spend some time, three years actually, went to Ephesus 
to spend some time there. And the people who live in Ephesus are called Ephesians. Exactly. So Paul leaves at the end of his ministry there. Paul, who has organized the church and who has preached the gospel and he's their spiritual father, he leaves Corinth and he goes to Ephesus. Now, after Paul left Corinth, anybody know what happened? What does, what does this look like to you? Chaos. Chaos. Thank you. It, I, do, I couldn't have had a better word. I didn't know how to, how to draw a picture of chaos, so I, I drew some X's and a line through it and scribbles all over. It's chaos and confusion and disorder. After Paul left, this is what began to grow and fester in the Corinthian church. Chaos, confusion, division, all kind of problems. After he left, he goes to Ephesus, and after he's gone, this kind of thing begins to grow. and begins to infiltrate the church. Ronnie? I'm sure he did, but but Paul, what kind of influence did Paul have when he was there? Huge influence. And when he left, although he may have left somebody in charge, and we're sure he did because he wasn't stupid. You know, he would have left. He would have left somebody there to minister and to lead the church. But did they have the same influence that he did? Would they would they likely have the boldness to speak up like he did? Probably not. Because as we're going to see when we go through the the um, book of Corinthians, it's on the other side, I think, we'll see the word rebuke. First Corinthians is a book of rebuke. One thing after another. This, this is a church, thank you, Teresa, for that word. This is a church in chaos in a, on a lot of different fronts, the Corinthian church is. And so he writes to them to address these issues. Uh, he's already in Ephesus, but he hears about this chaos that's happening there. And so then the Bible tells us, well, let me rephrase that. The Bible doesn't tell us he did this, but how many of you know what it means to deduce something? Some things we can figure out, right? And although, although the Bible doesn't tell us specifically that he left Ephesus and made a visit back to Corinth and then went back to Ephesus, although the Bible doesn't explicitly state that, we're going to see that that had to have happened just that way. It is um, 895 miles from Corinth on this side of the Aegean Sea, this says Aegean Sea if you can't read it, it's 895 miles from Corinth to go around this way and stay on land and get to Ephesus. That's quite a journey, isn't it? Especially on foot. It may be that he would have sailed uh, back and forth from Ephesus to Corinth and then back. But the point being is, is he made a trip back there as we're going to see in a few moments. And then he went back to Ephesus and continued his ministry. And in about, at the end of his third year, and we're going to see that he was in Ephesus for three years, nearing the end of that three-year time period is where he wrote First and Second Corinthians. Make sense? Pardon me? That would have been his, his first visit would have been right here. When he organized the church, right? Then he goes to Ephesus. Then he hears about this trouble. And he goes back to try to rectify that situation. That would have been his second visit to Ephesus or to, to uh, Corinth. Then he goes back to Ephesus where he stays for three years. And then he wants to go back. We'll read that a little bit later. Now, in Ephesus, while Paul is there, let's read what happens. Acts 19, verses 8 through 10. We're in Ephesus now, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. 
But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, which is what Christianity was described as by many, the way, before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So the Bible tells us there, there's, there's three months, and then there's two years that he spent there. Let's turn over to chapter 20, verse 31 of Acts, where the Bible says, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And he's talking to the Ephesian elders. So Paul spends three years ministering in Ephesus, and it's near the end of that three years that he writes these letters, First um, and Second Corinthians. Now, let's first of all, for just a minute, talk about the visits that Paul made to Corinth. The first visit, as we've already observed, was Acts 18 when the church was established. The second visit would have been when he came back to uh, Corinth to make a visit and try to address this chaos that's over here. And then when we read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, let's jump over there if you have your Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 14 simply says, Now, for the third time, I am ready to come to you. Right? We know what the first time was when the church was established. We know what the second one was when he went to check out this chaotic situation there and then went back to Ephesus. He was there for three years. And in verse 14, he says, Now, for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And chapter 13, verse one says, this will be the third time I am coming to you. So he says this twice. So we have his first visit, we have his second visit, and then we have the third visit on the radar. It hasn't happened yet when he writes that, but he's planning to go back for the third time. So he's, he's obviously going back and, and addressing problems and writing and communicating back and forth. Now, that's his visits. One, two, and a proposed one for the future that he mentions. Now let's look at his letters. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. He says. Listen very carefully to this, if you would. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Paul says, as he writes to the Corinthians... I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now, when Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle, is that past tense or present tense? It's past tense, right? Now, what do we call this book of the Bible I'm reading from? What do we call this, this epistle we're reading from? 1 Corinthians. That means there was a letter before 1 Corinthians. Follow me? So there was a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He references it in 1 Corinthians 5, but it's, he's referring to a letter that he wrote some time back. So his first letter was actually where he says, I wrote, this was a previous letter, his second letter is what we call 1 Corinthians, 5, 1 Corinthians. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, the Bible says, But now I have written to you. So, I wrote to you is about a previous letter. I'm writing to you now, he says in 1 Corinthians. That's the present letter. And then... He's going to write, obviously, if you turn your pages a few ways, you'll get to 2 Corinthians, and that's the third letter. Okay, is anybody confused about that? We do not have this letter right here. The one where he says, I wrote to you, we do not have that letter. It's considered lost. 
We don't know where it is. We don't know what it said, except Paul refers back to it and says, I know when I wrote you this letter, I made you sorry. And it had a great impact on them because the the tone of the letter and what he had to say. So when you look closely at, at these scriptures we've looked at, if if I write you a letter today, what's the date of today? 15, if I write you a letter on November the 15th, 2017, and I say in that letter written today that the letter I wrote to you, that means the other one had to have been written on the 14th or earlier, right? Sometime in the past. I'm referring to a letter that I wrote previously. And then the letter that I write on the 15th, and then I may promise you that I'm going to write you again next month on the 15th. It's kind of the same thing here. There's three different letters. The first one, right here, where he says, I wrote. The second one, which we call 1 Corinthians. And the third one, which we call 2 Corinthians. Now, the reason we share that is, is because you're going to, as you read through the books of the Bible, you're going to see that maybe and wonder, what's all that mean? And obviously, there is a letter there that we don't, we don't know what it says. There's, there are unanswered questions in the Scripture. Amen? There are things we're not told in the Scripture. And so this is, this is one of those things that we have to kind of read between the lines. We know there was a letter before 1 Corinthians, the one we call 1 Corinthians. And uh, so there we have that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, now we're getting to... Um, First Corinthians and what's being said there. First Corinthians one verse eleven. Actually, it's first. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, those of Chloe's household. Somebody. From Chloe's house, her family, her household, has shared some information with Paul that he hears about. They've been talking about the situation in the church, about how that there's some division in the church, about, as you continue reading there, uh, let's just start at verse 10. Now, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then he says, why do I say this? For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. And he goes on and talks about how this is, um, this is a terrible thing. This is a sad thing. This shouldn't exist. And that's the way he kicks off this, this epistle. He starts that way by, by addressing this problem that he has heard from these people who are visiting from Corinthians. If you uh, look at chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, something very similar to there, to, to what we just read. Chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. So he's heard these things. And then in chapter 11, verse 18, you see these, these uh, scriptures on the board if you need them. Chapter 11, verse 18 he says, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. So, someone has visited from the Corinthian church, this prominent family there, and he has heard these reports of these things that are going on. So, Paul is concerned. And as we, as we read this in 1 Corinthians... Chapter 5, verse 1, 11, 18, and what Chloe had to say, we can understand that Paul's visit when he left Ephesus and went back to Corinth to address the chaos and came back home, that 
did, his visit didn't fix the problem. The problem is still there. These things that were so troublesome to Paul, uh, now he hears that they still are continuing. I hear there's divisions among you. I hear there's immorality there, sexual immorality. And so he, he's going to, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, address these things. Um, there came a reply to Paul's first letter. Now, Paul, Paul, has, Paul has written to the church at Corinth, that would be this letter here, the first one that we do not have. Paul wrote to them, and then they wrote a letter back, a reply to Paul, and it was filled with bad reports, if you will, and it was filled with questions. For instance, as we're going to see, there's a section in the book of 1 Corinthians, well, the first section he addresses with the things he has heard. I've heard it was this way. I've heard it was that way. I hear there's sexual morality. I hear there's division. I hear there's brothers taking brother to court. I hear that. don't like that report. So he, the first part of 1 Corinthians, he addresses what he's hearing. And the second part of 1 Corinthians, he's addressing questions. They're saying, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? As they write to him. And so he's writing back 1 Corinthians, um, and he's answering these questions. Jimmy? Just a question. Um, talking about did he, leave a, did he leave a preacher or somebody? Could Chloe's family be the preacher's family? And they're reporting like to the overseer, as Paul might be, you know, and they're reporting about this chaos in the church. What are we going to do about it? Could. You know, no matter why I stand up there and preach, you know, nobody's listening, basically, and, and mm-hmm. I, I need help. Mm-hmm. Could that be kind of an inside, you know? Could be. Could be. I think that's a good point. There's a possibility that there's more to it than than what has generally been observed. That's a good observation. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Just to confirm what we've just stated. The letter came from the Corinthians to Paul, and he's writing back to them, and his answer is 1 Corinthians. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me. So prior to that, in chapters 1 through 6, Paul is addressing problems he's heard about in the Corinthian church that still exist. When he gets to chapter 7, now he begins to go through this list of questions that they had asked. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. Um, Verse 25. Now concerning virgins. He's answering another question. Chapter 8. Now concerning things offered to idols. He's answering another question. Um, Let me see here. I should have should have outlined all those now. It's an indication that he is now dealing with these subjects about. Okay, chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Again, so he's at, now he's answering questions that they had asked. And that's the second half of 1 Corinthians. He answers their questions and to address the continuing disorder in the church there. Now, let's look at the Corinthians themselves. Now, at this point, we're not looking at um, uh, the Scripture as much as we are history and what we know about the city. The Corinthians themselves, uh, well, and the church here in this particular first example, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. We're going to understand that the Christians in Corinth we could say, came from the lower class of people who lived there. Paul says to them, for, this is chapter 1, verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. What's that saying? Pardon me? He can use any class, any skill, 
whatever is available. He doesn't have to use doctors. As a general rule, in churches all across America, is it the is it the uneducated that are are more open to Christ? The lower class people are more open to Christ, or is it the millionaires? Yeah, we 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 don't like to consider that. It is a fact. Churches historically, in a lot of cases, have been populated by the poorer people. The poorer people have needs. The poorer people are filled with humility. The poorer people recognize they need a Savior. The rich and the high and mighty, the ones with fat bank accounts and live in palaces, don't have a need in the world really that they, they acknowledge they're intelligent, they're smart, they're rich. They don't need God, they think. They can make it without God. So I think that's what we're reading here. You see your calling, brethren, how not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. Amen to that. God uses humble people. Who did the angels give the message to that the Christ had come? Was it to the kings and the people who lived in the palace? Or was it to humble shepherds in the field? There's an example. Just one of many. So the people who are... are Common. That goes to Christ's birth. Sure. I mean, they chose Mary and Joseph, a carpenter. He could have chose somebody in the castle. Sure. Absolutely. So the he acknowledges there that it's not the rich and famous and and powerful and mighty that are most receptive to the gospel. It's those of humble means and humble origin. The Greeks were particularly um, prideful people in general. Uh, they were, even these people, the ones he's just described, were not free from the typical tendency of the Greek toward intellectual pride. Uh, Greeks were very proud of the intellect. Um, for instance, the language they spoke was Greek, and now Greek was the language that was spoke all over the world under the, in the under the empire at that time. Literature, they were very proud of their literature. How many have ever heard of Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey? Uh, from that period of time, going, emphasizing the, the literature of the Greeks, many others could be named. Learning, um, much wisdom, um, they gloried in and claimed to possess, and we'll read what Paul says about that in just a few minutes. And then the logic, the, the great philosophers like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle coming from, from that period of time. Wisdom was something they were very proud of. So Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he begins by renouncing wisdom, that is worldly wisdom. In chapter 1, verse 17, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Oh, goodness, I'm reading that and I'm thinking. In Washington, D.C., there's a bunch of men and women there who think they are the wisest among us. Am I right? And, and theoretically, at least, we've elected them there because we thought they were too. 
And they're getting nowhere. Fast. For years. Right? They're accomplishing nothing. It's, it's kind of a glowing example of the wisdom of this world, is it not? The brightest among us? And they're doing nothing? Accomplishing nothing? And so he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the world, of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Verse 25, I'm trying to save time here. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And we as Christians, even today, are looked at as ignorant. Poor people who have such little sense to believe that Jesus died on a cross. Poor people who were so foolish they get up and go to church on Sundays and worship a God that doesn't even exist. I'm quoting what they say. That's how they look at us. That's why we're ridiculed in the media. Even on the news in the past weeks you see Christians laughed at, made fun of. It uh, goes right along with this. But the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. But it was very important to those who lived in Corinth. Um, so Paul begins by renouncing worldly wisdom. It's, listen, I have, I have long been a believer. People ask me, how long, how long should you have to go to seminary before you can preach the gospel? And my answer is, you don't have to go to seminary to preach the gospel. You just do not. I, I don't care what anybody says. You do not have to go to seminary to preach the gospel. God can take a 10-year-old little boy and fill him with his spirit and set that kid's heart on fire and he can preach the gospel with more effectiveness than a seminary trained preacher, right? Absolutely. And it doesn't matter how many letters you've got behind your name. That impresses God not one little bit. Okay. And that story has been repeated many times. I've heard about people who could not read until they opened the Bible. They could read the Bible, but they couldn't read anything else. And and that is a, a kind of a common thing from days gone by, uh, as the Lord used people. So. That I bring that up just as an illustration that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Uh, there's a there's kind of a joke, not a joke. Um, well, you, you decide what you want to call it, but it's it's you hear people a lot of times now instead of saying that somebody went to the seminary, they say they went to the cemetery. Um, because they may have gone in with excitement and fire, but they came out maybe full of head knowledge, but no spirit, no real passion. And um, the Lord's not interested in the letters behind our name. He's interested in our commitment to Him. So there's a big difference between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. Another thing about the Corinthians is that they were addicted to immorality. That sounds like another nation I know. Chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Now, I just want to stop there, because at least we've, we've brought up the topic here of sexual immorality. Now, 
I'm, what we're trying to do is understand the times, understand the times of the uh, Corinthians, the culture of the Corinthians and so forth. I forgot to flip this earlier, sorry. In Corinth, like in many ancient cities, there were temples there. What was, what was the purpose of a temple? Worship. As I use the word temples in the plural in different cities, what would you have found in those temples? Gods, with a little g. Gods or idols. In Corinth, there were temples. A very notable one. Uh, in the city of Corinth, and this is not only true of Corinth, but many other cities in the ancient world, there were actually temple prostitutes. There were, what else can you say? There were temple prostitutes. And being on the, well, I flipped my map around. You all, you all, that's so pathetic, you didn't even know that was a map, did you? But if you had Corinth on one side of the Aegean Sea and Ephesus on the other side, you went across the sea from one place to another. And when the sailors left, for instance, Ephesus came across the Aegean Sea to Corinth, the sailors and the captains, you know where the first place they headed was? The temple. I read that. History, history records that. Do you know why they went to the temple? It was for the prostitutes. And, and, and somebody said it was to worship. It was to worship that God. And this was commonplace in New Testament times. Where you went to these temples, the false gods. There were professional prostitutes there. The numbers I've read on the one in Corinth were probably a thousand. Maybe Ephesus, there was one. Another city had two thousand. Temple prostitutes. Now, you can just imagine what was taking place there, but you would go and you would make your donation and the money went into the treasury of the temple there. So, now, you, we think, well, I mean, that's repulsive, it's disgusting, it's hard to believe it ever existed, but it was commonplace then. It was being done all over the place. I, I think it's helpful to understand that. Because then you know the background from which these people were coming when they came to Christ. And how many of you know when you bow on your knees and you invite Jesus into your heart and He saves you, everything you know and everything you are doesn't disappear just like that. You have a background. You have to be taught. You have to learn. Am I right? How many of you got saved and perfected at the very same time? It doesn't work that way. There's a, there's a process of learning. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we grow in grace. That's why we're continuing seeking to follow after the Lord. And so this sexual, sexual immorality, um, it was part of the fabric of the society of the Corinthians. It was like normal. People didn't look down on it. It was just part of life to many of them. Now, of course, if you were a Jewish Christian with a Jewish background, it would have been repulsive, right? Because of the teaching that they had. Here we go with the teaching again. Because of their background and their teaching, it would have been repulsive and they didn't like it. And they would have probably not participated in that and not tolerated those who had come out of that into the church, perhaps, and didn't know the things that we understand today. But that was part of the culture there. Immorality. In 1 Corinthians 11.21, we read a, a, another little nugget about what goes on there. 1 Corinthians 11.21, where the Bible says, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. Anybody know where we're talking about here? Not just Corinth, but what's the context for that statement? In, in Corinth specifically, there had been a custom to wed the Lord's Supper. Very sacred, right? Would you agree the Lord's Supper is a very sacred time? There had been a custom to wed the Lord's Supper with a, a meal, much like we would consider a homecoming. They called it the agape feast. 
So they all came together for the agape feast and they spread the table with all this food and then they just sat down and had this big meal. And in the midst of that, they'd have the Lord's Supper. And Paul says to them, this is, this is abusive, you should not do this. Because we've already read they didn't get along one another. We've already read there was division in the church. We've already read there was chaos. And Paul says, when you all come together to eat, you bring all your stuff. And you, and you, if you brought the lobster and the, the tenderloin and, and all the good stuff, you'd sit down and pig out on that. And the people who bought the bologna sandwiches pigged out on that. So the poor had to eat what the poor brought with them, and the rich got to eat the good stuff. There was no fellowship there. There was no consideration for how other people felt there. And some of them pigged out and got drunk, while others did without, because there wasn't even enough to go around. That doesn't sound very Christ-like, does it? But yet it was taking place there, even in the, the context of the church gathering together, and eating the Lord's Supper. That is, incidentally, why the Bible teaches us in um, 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves and not to take the uh, Lord's Supper unworthily, which it means in a careless manner. In a careless manner. You don't take the Lord's Supper in a careless manner. It's not a time to laugh and joke and play. It's a time to very seriously consider the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross Boy, that's some place to live, wasn't it? Corinth. The tone of Corinth as... Well, I've got to go back to the other side now. The tone of Corinth is an epistle of rebuke. These things that we've mentioned, all this chaos, this confusion, the inability to get along, the inability to consider your brother instead of yourself, the... the uh, um, Immorality that was there, the um, the tendency to to lash out at other people, all of those things that he talks about throughout the book of Corinthians. It's an epistle of rebuke because he he's consistently hammering at those things and saying these things are not the way it's supposed to be. The message of First Corinthians is the lordship of Christ. And we can read that in chapter 1, but I'm not going to read that because I'm going to spend some time on that Sunday morning. But the message of the book of 1 Corinthians is the Lordship of Christ. We can say that and it don't mean a thing. But you start focusing on what Lordship means, it begins to take on a whole new meaning, especially in light of what we're learning about the city of Corinth tonight. So, as, um, as a very very um, general outline of the book of 1 Corinthians. The introduction to 1 Corinthians is chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Remember how we said that Paul had heard about things that were going on in Corinth? There was confusion and chaos there. These things that were reported to Paul, that's covered in chapter 1, verse 10 to 6, verse 8. And we'll go back and talk about that briefly tonight, very briefly. And then the next section is things that were inquired of Paul. In other words, the questions that they had, and they wanted answers to, for clarification. That was in chapter 6, verse 9 through 16, verse 4, as he addresses those things. And then just a general conclusion in chapter 16, verses 5 through 24. So, very quickly, and if you want to flip through your Bibles... You can start in chapter 1, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about these because we're going to be running out of time, um, but we'll work our way through 1 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 18, division among the church is denounced. We can't have this. Um, not supposed to be this way. Something's got to change, Paul says, and he rebukes that divisive spirit. In chapter 1, verses 19 to 2.16, worldly wisdom is denounced. Now, Paul was not against education. Paul was a highly educated man. And we're not against education today, are we? But education is not the answer for all the problems. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we read of um, hindrances 
to personal and church growth. Let's, let's read a little bit of that. Chapter 3, 1 through 4. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people. <laughs> In case you all didn't notice, that's a rebuke. He said, you, you folks are not spiritual. You're babies. You need to grow up. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? So what we're seeing there is that Paul is talking about hindrances to personal and church growth. When we, um, when we move on, he's going to begin talking later in the chapter about sources of success, like building on the right foundation and having dependence upon God, trusting in the Lord. He's the one who gives the increase, in other words. In chapter 5, Immorality is denounced. We've already read the first few verses of that chapter. And that's something that we're not supposed to be participants of as we become Christians. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This is an interesting passage. And I can honestly say, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody preach this passage other than my dad. Because when I was growing up, I heard him preach through Corinthians, just like I've preached through Corinthians here this is not talked about much. And, and when, I, when I hear this and when I read this, I'm thinking, why doesn't somebody preach this stuff? Because you have Christians suing other Christians. Christians taking Christians to court. And Paul says, what are you doing? You're brothers in the Lord. You're both Christians. You should be able to come together as Christians and work this out. Is that not true? People who love Jesus and have a right spirit ought to be able to come together and work things out. Not rip each other apart, but, but build each other up and encourage one another. So he says, dare any of you, or how dare any of you, having a matter against another to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Do you not know that saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? And he just, he keeps, verse 5, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Exclamation point. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brother. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he goes and reads this whole list of things. But that's, that's the kind of thing sometimes that we don't, we don't consider. We don't consider the, the wisdom of the Word of God sometimes. And we just kind of dismiss it as if, well, it doesn't really matter. Boy, it's hard for me not to get on lordship right now. But I better shut up because that's for Sunday. Um, beginning at verse six, chapter 6, verse 9. I've got to get some glasses that I can focus in on things. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous. You know, as I just read that, I see, I see the word homosexuals, I see the word sodomites. Um, uh, 
How can people say in our society today that the Bible doesn't condemn those things? I mean, you hear it, don't you? I've heard people just boldly declare, the Bible doesn't say anything about homosexuality. You hear that all the time. The Bible plainly does say something about homosexuality. And it's, it's, it, it blows my mind. I mean, have they not read the Bible? I'm talking about supposedly educated people. The wisdom of the world is different from the wisdom of God. Amen? And we don't have the right to ignore the Word of God and subscribe to the wisdom of the world as Christians. We're obligated, obligated to follow God's rule and God's law. So, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. This is one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible right here, verse 11. And such were some of you. <laughs> I love that. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. There's hope for us all, right? If we'll turn to the Lord. He'll wash us and cleanse us and make us new. Well, meat offered to idols, chapter 8. And we're running out of time. We're going to have to bring it to a quick close here. Meat offered to idols. You may wonder why that would be such a discussion. We've talked about the temples. And in most all the temples, there were sacrifices held. There were animals that were sacrificed on the altars in these temples to idols. And then many times, this meat from these animals that were sacrificed would end up in the local food line or the meat market. So people would go to the meat market and they could buy this meat that had been offered to idols at a reduced rate. It was cheaper than some of the other meat. So some people who, like myself, are looking for a deal, they would go in and buy this cheaper meat, save a little money, still have some good meat. Well, some of the Christians would say, you can't eat meat that's been offered to idols. And that was a big deal in the early church. Big deal. Acts chapter 15, they were talking about that. It was a major issue in the early church. Could somebody tell me what they finally decided? Was it a sin to eat meat offered to idols? No, it wasn't. Why? Because an idol is nothing. An idol is a rock. An idol is... It, 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 it in no way was the meat contaminated. It was dead, yeah. <laughs> it, so buy meat and eat it if you want to. With this caveat. But... What was the but? Don't offend your brother. If I believe it's okay to eat meat offered to an idol, but Brother Tony doesn't believe you can, I should not invite him over to my house and grill a steak this big that was offered to an idol. That's, <laughs> That's weird. Hands going up all over the place. Invite me. Do you get the point? Because it, Paul said an idol is nothing. It's nothing. But the person's feelings who may genuinely be offended and hurt because of your actions, don't offend your brother. Don't, don't cause your brother to stumble. And if you do that, it's wrong. It's not the eating the meat that's wrong. It's the being offensive to your brother that's wrong. Now, that, that same scenario can be used in many other areas of life. But the, the point here is we have to consider the feelings of other people. And that can be, that is such a broad principle. Such a broad principle that we have to be very aware of that. Now, um, chapter 10 Beginning at verse 16, and we're going to close here.
chapter 10, beginning at verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Remember how we've had communion before and I'd hold up a whole loaf and talk about how this, this loaf is who we are. It represents all of us. It also represents Christ and we break this whole loaf and we are all partakers of the one bread, Jesus. But it also symbolizes, if you go back to the full loaf, the entire body and how we're one. Beginning at uh, halfway through verse 16, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What I'm saying then, or what am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. But I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? All things are lawful for me. But all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner... And you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience or for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I gave thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. We were in a funeral day before yesterday, Monday, it was uh, Robert Ratliff's father. And the pastor who was preaching the funeral talked about how he knew when he got to heaven, he was going to eat ham biscuits. And, of course, he drew this out and made it a, made it a, a funny story. But his, his, he knew there were going to be people in heaven who didn't like ham biscuits, who didn't eat pork. But he was convinced because he loved them, heaven was going to hold ham biscuits for him. So, wouldn't it be a silly thing for us to quibble over something so insignificant and break fellowship and have hurt feelings and, and, and not consider the feelings of others when talking about such things. Sometimes, sometimes we just need to lighten up. Amen? And understand that other people, um, there may be things that we don't actually see eye to eye on. We feel differently about some things. What good grief, the person you've been married to for at least three days or more, you found out that you have some differences of opinion on certain things. Now, we're not talking about thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not steal. We're not talking about the Word of God. We're talking about other things that the Bible hasn't addressed plainly and directly. So there, there's room enough for us to love one another and have fellowship with one another. And, and uh, well, I hadn't planned to do this, but it just kind of comes to mind here. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if all God's people... 
if we could just do away with this and there would be no more what, Teresa? No more chaos. No more confusion. No more division. We could do that. With God's help, we could do that. Couldn't we? Uh, We'd have to learn to zip it sometimes. Well... We're on our way. Is it more pleasant in a marriage if each of the spouses learn to just zip it up sometimes? Or is it a happier if everybody spouts off everything that comes to their mind? In any relationship. In any relationship. It really is true. It really is true. Um... Before we began tonight, a prayer request came in from a family who attends our church. And a rather urgent matter has come up in their family. Uh, Without giving any details, they said, please just ask for unspoken prayer. So if you would, I'd like for you to just, let's lift up this unnamed family that the Lord would minister to this situation. Um, I noticed uh, Walter had said that his uncle has died, and they will be traveling to Florida. So let's pray for uh, traveling mercies for them, please. And um, you all feel free to help me with other requests that we need to remember.